Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, November 18th. In today's news, Hong Kong protesters are making what could be a last stand as riot police move in. Gordon Sundland kept Rick Perry and Mick Mulvaney in the loop on what he was up to. There are emails. And a loss in the Louisiana governor's race this weekend is a fresh warning sign for the GOP. But first, the big idea. Everything seemed ready to go. President Trump's ban on most flavored e-cigarettes had been cleared by federal regulators. Officials were poised to announce that they would order candy, fruit, and mint flavors off the market within 30 days, a step the president had promised two months earlier in order to quell a youth vaping epidemic that has ensnared 5 million teenagers. Just one thing was needed. Trump's final sign-off. But on November 4th, the night before a morning news conference that was planned for the very next day, the president balked. During an Air Force One flight to a campaign rally in Kentucky, Trump refused to sign a one-page decision memo, saying he didn't want to move forward with a ban that he himself had publicly announced on September 9th. As he has done so many times before, Trump reversed course, this time on a plan to address a major public health problem because of worries that angry vape shop owners and their customers might hurt his re-election prospects. It's the latest example of the chaotic way that policy is made and unmade in a White House where the ultimate decider often switches gears after making a controversial vow, whether on combating gun violence, pulling troops from Syria, or promising to deliver an Obamacare replacement plan. Officials said the blowback to Trump's vow to ban most flavored e-cigarettes rattled him, In an aggressive social media campaign using the hashtag IVapeIVote, advocates claimed the ban would shut down thousands of shops and send vapors back to cigarettes. The president saw protesters outside of his events from the motorcade. His campaign manager, Brad Parscale, privately warned that the ban could hurt him in battleground states and circulated polling that had been commissioned by the vaping industry. My colleagues Josh Dossie and Lori McGinley, who broke this story last night, say Trump has soured on Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, who took the lead in putting together the plan. Trump blames Azar for putting him in a pickle. In recent months, the president's wife, Melania, and daughter, Ivanka, who have become increasingly alarmed about youth vaping, were pressing him to take action. Whether or when the administration will ever unveil any kind of new policy to combat underage vaping is now unclear. A senior administration official says Trump, quote, didn't know much about this issue and was just doing it for Melania and Ivanka. Late last week, more than a dozen White House officials met to try and find a way forward. Given Trump's record of zigzags, some officials cautioned that the president could reverse course once again, or he might back some kind of ban on flavored e-cigarettes that exempts vape shops. Others say the White House might pursue a different tack altogether by endorsing legislation that would raise the minimum federal age for buying tobacco products from 18 to 21, or take other steps to try to prevent teens from getting access to the products. Some bet that the anti-vaping effort is dead altogether, though, especially because the administration can argue that the youth vaping problem has been greatly eased by Juul Labs' recent decision to stop selling its popular mint-flavored nicotine pods. One top Trump advisor predicts, quote, it's going to go the way of guns. 
After the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton, Trump promised he would make sure there were what he called very strong background checks. Then he caved under pressure from the NRA. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, hundreds of pro-democracy protesters are surrounded by riot police inside a besieged Hong Kong college campus as almost six months of intensifying anti-government unrest appeared headed for a bitter and perhaps bloody climax. Police have blocked exits to try to coax exhausted protesters out of the Polytechnic University after a night of clashes with students. When some attempted to leave, officers forced them back with tear gas and rubber bullets and made dozens of arrests. As night fell and with explosions and black smoke emanating from the college grounds, police repeated demands over loudspeakers for the demonstrators, some of whom had been locked up there for days, to surrender. At rallies across Hong Kong, people expressed support for these trapped students. They're chanting, save Polly Yu, save the students. In the densely packed streets adjoining the university, demonstrators using umbrellas as shields edged toward police lines and were repulsed with tear gas. Unable to forge a political settlement to end an uprising that has shattered Hong Kong's reputation as a stable base for business, the city's embattled leadership has appeared increasingly paralyzed, even as it's clamped down harder on these demonstrators. The spiraling violence and heavy-handed crackdown have sharpened concerns about the viability of China's one-country, two-systems framework. Over at the Polytechnic University, a frontline protester told one of our four reporters deployed on the island that people are frantically trying to find a way out of the campus in the face of the police encirclement. Protesters who broke inside a doctor's office left blood around the room and a note apologizing. The head of the university student union says that some 500 to 600 students remain trapped inside. Beijing should know the world is watching. Number two. The Republican senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, said that the Trump administration officials who provided information to the anonymous whistleblower about the president's efforts to coerce Ukraine, quote, exposed things that didn't need to be exposed. Johnson, who's chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, said on Meet the Press Sunday that this would have been far better off if we would have just taken care of this behind the scenes. So much for the importance of congressional oversight. For his part, Trump on Sunday continued to take aim at his own administration officials, accusing Jennifer Williams, Vice President Pence's special advisor on Europe and Russia, of being a never-Trumper. There is no evidence of that. She's a career foreign service officer who's been detailed to the White House, but she is expected to testify publicly against the president on Tuesday. Her previous closed-door testimony, her deposition was released on Saturday afternoon, suggests that the Office of Management and Budget clamped down on Ukraine aid more than two weeks earlier than was previously reported. The comments by Trump and Johnson also come amid intensifying scrutiny of the actions of U.S. Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sundland, who's expected to testify on Wednesday, one of eight people scheduled to appear publicly this week. According to testimony that was released on Saturday afternoon, a former White House national security official, Tim Morrison, told House investigators that Sunderland was acting at Trump's behest and spoke to a top Ukrainian official about exchanging military aid for political investigations. Both of those elements are at the heart of the impeachment inquiry. Morrison, the former top Russia and Europe advisor on the National Security Council, testified that it was his understanding Sunderland spoke to Trump directly about a half a dozen times between July 16th and September 11th. Trump is increasingly trying to distance himself from Sunderland, claiming that he hardly knew who he was. The Wall Street Journal, though, has obtained emails that show Sunderland 
was keeping several senior Trump administration officials apprised of his efforts to get Ukraine to launch investigations into Joe and Hunter Biden, specifically Mick Mulvaney, the acting White House chief of staff, and Rick Perry, the energy secretary. The White House has refused to turn over any records or documents, so we don't know exactly how much Sunland and Trump were in touch. Number three. When Kentucky's Republican governor lost his bid for re-election two weeks ago after Trump went all in to help, the president and his allies brushed it off by declaring that Trump had nearly dragged an unpopular incumbent across the finish line. On Sunday, though, a day after another Trump-backed GOP gubernatorial candidate fell short in Louisiana, another deep red state, the president and his surrogates barely mounted a defense. In a barrage of 40 tweets and retweets on Sunday, Trump didn't mention Eddie Raspone's loss to incumbent Governor John Bell Edwards, a Democrat, even though the president held two campaign rallies in the state during the 10 days before the election. Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel, who publicly praised Trump after the Kentucky elections, also was mum on Louisiana. What Trump did in Louisiana was increase voter participation. While he increased the pro-Trump turnout, he also increased the anti-Trump turnout. Democrats ran up the score in urban areas thanks to high turnout by African Americans who don't like Trump, and they made major inroads in suburban areas and among suburban women outside New Orleans and Baton Rouge who also dislike Trump. That explains why the Democratic governor in a state like Louisiana could win re-election. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, November 18th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. It's updated whenever news happens. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.